When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Christmas Day 1901 and Johnston's Bay, White Bay and Blackwattle Bay, just a mile west of central Sydney, are enough to make the Christian faithful contemplate the New Testament. Not the nice part about the three wise men and the nativity, but the other end of the good book, Revelation, the bit where it says, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. That's because today, these bays really are brimming with blood and gore. This is the runoff from the Glebe Island abattoir that supplies the city's meat. Once this sluice juice enters the harbour, it congeals and it rots, and it blends with the stinking muck that flows from four sewer outlets that also empty into these bays. This pollution has been a problem for years, but it's recently been made even worse by the new Glebe Island Bridges Causeway. Save for a gap of 60 feet, this is a solid structure and it's all but made the bays into dams, so the natural tidal ebb and flow can't flush out all the accumulated effluvia. In the past year, local resident Henry Swan has repeatedly requested that the state government do something. Mr Swan is no ordinary citizen. He's an alderman, frequent Balmain mayor and co-owner of the timber business Swan Brothers, which has a wharf right on Johnston's Bay. In the middle of 1901, the Board of Works promised it was going to dredge these waters. The minister said he'd work night and day to ensure it was done. But nothing happened. Further overtures by Mr Swan and other concerned citizens have been repeatedly rebuffed by officials. The Board of Health, the Water Board, the Board of Works, the Harbour Trust, they all insist it's not their department. So, this Christmas day, when Australians are sitting down to their roast lunches, Mr Swan collects two buckets from Johnston's Bay. His catch should be seawater. Instead, it's brown-red muck with offal at the bottom. 
He'll show these samples to newspaper reporters and say he could have collected 1,000 more buckets just like them. Buckets that turn your stomach so badly you have to turn away to light your pipe. With summer in full force, the stench is almost unbearable for the 50,000 people who live and work on and around the foreshores of Balmain, Glebe, Roselle and Piermont. The smell hangs over Balmain's township. When the wind blows from the west, this so-called Roselle perfume wafts right into Sydney as far as George Street. But the bays of blood and gore may be more than just offensive, stinking eyesores. They might be toxic time bombs. That's because on the Glebe Island Bridge Causeway alone, thousands upon thousands of rats are feeding and breeding. Any one of these rodents could carry bubonic plague, which struck Sydney's waterfront just two years ago and led to more than 100 people dying. Just this very month, the plague has resurfaced in the city and put one man into a disinfectant-filled grave at the quarantine station at North Head. Yet, Sydney's not alarmed or even particularly alert. Precautions against a recurrence of the plague, including the destruction of rats, have been allowed to lapse, thanks to the very same complacency and blame-shifting that's allowed bays of blood to fester right on the city's doorstep. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Plague Returns. As I record this, Australia's battling the Omicron outbreak. Two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, there's a strong sense that we shouldn't be where we are now, that we should be doing better than this. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that our leaders are making the same mistakes repeatedly. Most recently, just in time for Christmas, this meant doing away with simple precautions right as we faced a new, highly transmissible variant. As this disaster has unfolded from the top down, there's been a lot of talk about our personal responsibility. Not so long ago, that included getting tested. Now, good luck with finding a rat. Anyway, all of you know all of this all too well. But 120 years ago this month, Sydney was in a similar situation. Except then, thanks to government inaction, the rat problem was there were far too many of them. This was despite the science having been established. That was, that rats carried fleas that could spread the bubonic plague to people. Sydney had already learned this lesson the hard way just recently, and you can hear the full story of that outbreak in the July 2020 Forgotten Australia episode, The Plague of 1900. Since 1900, a few things had happened. Federation for one. Yet, the new nation of Australia was in the grip of drought, and this was putting a big strain on the economy. New South Wales, like other states, was still finding its feet, and it was doing so under new leadership. Its Premier, Sir William Lyon, who'd overseen the 1900 plague response, had gone to the Federal Cabinet in March of 1901, and he'd been replaced by Premier John C. The Sydney City Council, which had been blamed for the filthy conditions that had been exposed by the anti-rat crusade, had been voted out. So the city had a new mayor in Sir James Graham, a council member and respected doctor who'd acquitted himself well during the outbreak. Finally, Dr John Ashburton Thompson, the boss of the new Board of Health, had become ill in the middle of 1901 and had to step down, replaced temporarily by his bacteriologist, Dr Frank Tidswell. These men and other government and council officials had inherited a city and suburbs that had been neglected for decades. They were also governing a population that was still only waking up to the science. It was a far from perfect situation, but these were the cards that Sydney had been dealt. 
Back then, you didn't have to be a bacteriologist to understand just how fast rats can multiply. A female rat can have between 5 and 12 pups per litter, and she can have 7 litters per year. These offspring are themselves sexually mature in about 5 weeks. So, from two rats, you can get maybe 1,250 every year. Glebe Island Bridge's rodent population in January 1902 alone could have theoretically led to millions. To expand through the city, the rats only had to take to those sewers and find other places to feed and breed. Due to ongoing neglect, Sydney offered these in abundance. But when bubonic plague did reappear in serious fashion, politicians and bureaucrats' first course of action was usually to deny all responsibility. Their second course of action was to blame someone else. By the time they actually took action, the problem was far, far worse than it should have been. And then they put the onus back on the citizenry to exercise their personal responsibility. But the infrastructure to make even that possible wasn't properly in place. As Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. Sydney's bays of blood weren't necessarily sources of infection in the second wave of bubonic plague. They were simply the most visible breeding ground in a city that had again been allowed to become thoroughly infested with rats. The health response to the 1900 outbreak had been spearheaded by three men. That was Dr John Ashburton Thompson, the bacteriologist Dr Frank Tidswell, and the City of Sydney's medical officer Dr William Armstrong. Dr Ashburton Thompson and Dr Tidswell's work was essential to the international acceptance of the science of transmission of the bubonic plague bacterium, Eumenia pestis, to humans by fleas from infected rats. On a practical level, the New South Wales State Government, the Sydney City Council and municipal councils and other bodies embarked on a massive program of rat extermination and washing down, locking down and knocking down in sanitary places where they might live. It was a hugely expensive and heartbreaking operation. Shameful too, because Sydney was made to confront the conditions in which many people lived, forever remembered thanks to photos of piled dead rats and appalling slum housing. But by August 1900, the battle against bubonic plague was finished, though Dr Ashburton Thompson warned that the war had not been won. He predicted the plague would recur in two or three years. It had come back on a foreign ship, or it would have survived in rats that had been driven from the city into the suburbs. To minimise the risk of a serious outbreak, vigilance was needed. Rats had to be caught, killed and analysed. Sanitation had to be continually improved. Yet, with bubonic plague out of sight, protective measures were soon mostly out of mind. And if they weren't out of mind, they were often out of reach because no one wanted to spend money in these tough economic times. We also have to factor in simpler causes. Complacency, stupidity, inertia, sloth, and so on. However these factors combined, the result was this. Filthy houses and businesses went uninspected in streets where rubbish was placed in open boxes and collected only once a week. In the private sphere, without too much to fear from various council sanitary inspectors, slumlords continued to collect rent for places that were simply unfit for human habitation. These were houses without ventilation, where rotting floorboards stood over decades-old accumulations of filth, and where backyard outhouses were lean-tos thrown together from odds and ends. In these suburbs, night soil was removed irregularly and often dumped in vacant land or used by Chinese market gardeners for fertiliser. But it wasn't just slum suburbs that were the problem. 
city businesses a stone's throw from Parliament might have had superficially clean facades, but they were often dirty inside and backed into yards of shadow and squalor. Rats were everywhere, and they were multiplying exponentially. So, at the start of 1902, the bloody bays were just the most visible sign of how rotten things had gotten again. Actually, on the 4th of January, under the headline, The Pestilential Odours, the newspaper Balmain Observer and Western Suburbs Advertiser reported that old residents said it had never been this bad. Quote, In warm evenings of late, when the tide is dead low, it is simply a painful and disgusting thing to have to pass the bay either on foot or in the tram. And as the ferry steamers stir up the waters, the air is polluted far and near. The only matter for surprise is that there has not been a very serious outbreak of disease owing to this plague spot. Henry Swan had, the paper said, quote, tried time after time to rouse the authorities to their sense of duty, but always with the same result. In other words, nothing. All told, 67,500 gallons of contaminated fluid was being allowed to escape from the abattoir into this part of the harbour every three days. That's about one Olympic swimming pool's worth every month. And like I said, it had nowhere to go. Newspapers were awake to this slow-motion scandal. All the way back in February 1901, the Sydney Morning Herald had reported that rats were now more numerous than ever. In October that year, Balmain Council wrote to the state government asking what amount of money it might receive for extra expenditure incurred in preventing the spread of plague. The answer was none. The government said it wasn't its responsibility. The Balmain Inspector of Nuisances then wrote to the Board of Health about the bay and was told the matter, quote, would receive due consideration. Mr. Swan then wrote to them on the 12th of October saying the, quote, stench from the bay was so bad that the workmen in the vicinity could not eat their food. It took six weeks to get a reply. And when it came, it wasn't from the Board of Health, but from the Harbour Trust. They said dredging would be carried out as soon as a dredge became available. That promise had already been made months ago by the Minister of Works. And again, nothing happened. The Sydney Morning Herald described the political problem of solving the pollution problem, quote, One department after another has referred the matter to some other department. The Harbour Trust commissioners admitted the existence of the nuisance, but practically said they did not have the dredges to do the work. On it went. As these reports were appearing, fish in the bays were dying in their thousands, and their decaying bodies added to the stench. The last time a mass fish kill like this had happened in Sydney had been in March 1900, when the bubonic plague had the city in its grip. The Sydney Mail said of the bays, quote, The whole incident is significant of the way such matters have been allowed to drift. The blight of Johnston's Bay and the continuing inaction made it seem like the city was inviting bubonic plague back in. On the 14th of November, 1901, it happened. A 17-year-old carter named Robert Breeze was reported ill with what appeared to be bubonic plague. The victim worked at Hay Street in the city. An inspection of these premises found dozens and dozens of dead rats beneath the floorboards. The building and others nearby were sanitised. Sydney's mayor, Sir James Graham, said rats were on the rise again and another rat crusade might be needed. This was easier to say than to do. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, 
as the localities where the rats were most likely to concentrate were not within the control of the city council, they had to bring the seriousness of the position under the notice of the government in the hope that it would take notice. This meant the Premier had to act to order the Harbour Trust to cleanse the wharves and the water board to flush and fumigate the sewers. But the Premier, John C., did not make that order. Plague victim Robert Breeze was moved to the quarantine station at North Head, which had served in the 1900 outbreak, and he was soon progressing well. His house at Alexandria was sanitised. His contacts weren't infected, nor were they isolated. Dr Tidswell's research and that of other bacteriologists around the world had concluded that person-to-person transmission wasn't likely. So henceforth, any contacts were merely ordered to report to a doctor once a day to ensure they were free of symptoms. The Premier on the 20th of November said he was giving Dr Tidswell carte blanche to prevent the spread of plague because prevention was better than cure. Rat extermination and ship fumigation began in earnest. But Sydney's mayor was angry because fumigation of sewers still hadn't been ordered. Yet the Premier said it was being done, and further, it had been his government's idea. Yet the flushing and fumigation order was only announced on the 27th, after the criticism and a full week after Dr Tidswell supposedly had full control to do whatever was necessary. In any case, the Sydney Morning Herald was just glad that action was being taken. Yet it noted these efforts would only be effective if citizens joined the war. Mayor Sir James Graham's call for a rat crusade needed to be heeded, the paper said, which meant not just killing the vermin, but denying them places to live and to multiply. On the 7th of December, Dr Tidswell met with the Premier. He was happy to report no further bubonic rats had been discovered and that fumigation and inspection was progressing well. He said he hoped there'd been no further cases. The next day... Sunday the 8th of December, James Derrington, a man in his mid-30s, became seriously ill. He worked in a warehouse at O'Connell Street, just a few blocks from Parliament. By the time the Board of Health was notified on Tuesday night, he was too sick with bubonic plague to be moved from his home. A nurse was sent from the Coast Hospital at Little Bay in Randwick. Mr Derrington died the next day, and his body was removed to the quarantine hospital for burial in a disinfected grave. People who die from bubonic plague die very hard. Symptoms come fast, perhaps hours, a few days at most, and they put sufferers into chills and fever and head and body pains. There might be vomiting and diarrhea and racking cough. Bleeding from all orifices is also common. The really bad sign is the appearance of buboes, big painful swellings in the lymph nodes. That they darken, along with gangrenous extremities, gives bubonic plague its common name the Black Death. Despite Black Death in the heart of the city and a chain of blood-red bays just a mile away, Sydney wasn't particularly concerned. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, Dr Tidswell states that the crusade against rats will be vigorously continued, but there is at present no indication of need for action other than that being taken. A week passed, then another, then one more. By New Year's Eve, there had been no further cases. As the Sydney Morning Herald said in its wrap-up of 1901 on the 31st of December, quote, Later in the year, the plague made a reappearance, but this unwelcome revival has apparently been completely held in check. Of course, the first week of the New Year saw all those newspaper stories about the bloody bays. They were hard to ignore, but it was possible to deny or to downplay any problem they might pose. 
On the 8th of January, Dr Tidswell told the Sydney Morning Herald that the Glebe Island abattoir was regularly cleaned to his satisfaction. The paper reported that he concluded, while, quote, far from being perfect, still it was free from any defect really dangerous to the public health. In conclusion, he said, the fears appeared to him to be groundless. Dr Tidswell might have been speaking from a purely bacteriological point of view. Sure, if you didn't drink or bathe in the blood and offal filled water, you'd probably remain free from any serious illness. But what about just being nauseated day after day? That didn't seem to factor into his thinking. Nor was it reported that the doctor had offered any opinion on the huge rat's nest on the Glebe Island Bridge Causeway. As for the language, the fears appeared to him to be groundless, you can imagine how that was received in kitchens, sitting rooms and pub front bars in Glebe, Roselle, Balmain and White Bay. Since mid-November, 15,006 rats had been burned in the Board of Health's city furnace. Many more would have died in fumigated sewers and other hidey holes. Was this a victory? Did it make a dent? 15,000 was what about a dozen breeding pairs could have produced in the last year. But a dead rat was a good rat for the future rats it'd prevent. So the rat crusade was indeed a righteous one. But on the 8th of January... The same day he said the bays were A-OK, -okay, Dr Tidswell announced that the Board of Health's anti-plague measures were being suspended. While the city rat furnace would continue to operate, and the three-penny bounty per corpse would still be paid, the incinerator's hours were reduced so it was closed on Saturday afternoons and on Sundays. These were of course the times that working people had free. The message this decision sent to the average person had to be that the rat threat was passing or had indeed already passed. Dr Tidswell's decision was reportedly based on two things. One, there hadn't been a plague rat found since the 26th of November. Two, there had been no further cases since the unfortunate Mr Derrington's demise on the 11th of December. Dr Tidswell was acting well within the guidelines. An Australian port could be declared plague-free after 10 days without a new case or infected rat. Perhaps the bacteriologist in Dr Tidswell would rather have kept spending the government's money out of an abundance of caution, because he had to know there were still tens or even hundreds of thousands of rats out there. But Dr Tidswell was also a public servant, serving at the pleasure of a cash-strapped Premier. 1902, while Inner West residents remained up in arms about the stench from the bloody bays, an acting Board of Health boss, Dr Frank Tidswell, was declaring the city all but safe from plague, the most ambitious show in Australian history was about to be staged in Sydney. Ben-Hur. Nothing could be bigger. The play was adapted from General Lou Wallace's 1880 book, Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. The novel intertwined the story of fictional Jewish prince Judah Ben-Hur with the life of Jesus Christ. 
it was an exciting hybrid, combining rollicking action-adventure with a reverential message of religious redemption. Ben-Hur was the sort of book a holy rolling reverend could recommend to his God-revering and God-fearing congregation. Reverends did just that, and since publication, Ben-Hur, in America at least, had outsold every book except the Bible. Ben-Hur was absolutely epic. Its most celebrated set-piece was the chariot race between the hero and the villainous Masala. But it was the very basis for the book's success, spectacle and spirituality, that made any dramatic adaptation seem impossible. How to stage racing chariots pulled by galloping horses. Just as vexing, how to show Jesus Christ, God, on stage without being blasphemous. For these reasons, Lou Wallace denied producers the theatrical rights for almost 20 years. But that changed in 1899 when a writer named William Young came up with the idea of depicting Christ only obliquely as a beam of light. Lou Wallace liked that. Theatrical impresarios and producers, meanwhile, had devised an incredible electrical treadmill system that, combined with a moving painted backdrop, made possible on stage that thrilling chariot race. Lou Wallace, he liked that too. Ben-Hur, with a stirring musical score by Edward Stillman Kelly, opened on Broadway in New York in November 1899. It was a massive hit, and it'd have seasons in Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, and other American cities. Ben-Hur would be seen by 20 million people as it played continuously for the next two decades. As a book and a stage production, there was nothing bigger than Ben-Hur. London would have been the next natural place for it to be staged in 1899. Yet, apart from a solitary perfunctory performance for copyright reasons, it wasn't then produced. And Ben-Hur wouldn't start in London until April of 1902. So, before that, Ben-Hur would make his debut in Sydney. In the days when home meant England and all things cultural flowed from her, this might have been considered the cultural equivalent of federation and a break from tradition without English betters. That Ben-Hur would play in Sydney before London was certainly a source of pride and of excitement. Back then it would have gone without saying, but this production was going to be staged by Australia's most famous producer, James Cassius Williamson, at the unheard of cost of £7,000. JCW was bringing a theatrical troupe from London to star in the production. Ben-Hur would be played by a young actor named Conway Turl. He'd lead a principal cast of some dozen players, and there were a dozen more supports. Only one of the main cast was Australian. This was Mabel Lane from Melbourne, who'd play Ben-Hur's mother. In addition to the main Ben-Hur cast, some 400 men, women and children would play guards, slaves, pirates, flower girls, camel drivers, lepers, nobles, citizens, Arabs, Romans, Egyptians and Jews. This massive production spanned six acts. Ben-Hur began with the three wise men following the star to Bethlehem. It ended nearly four hours later with a divine supernatural light appearing during the healing of lepers on Mount Olivet. But the climax? That came at the end of Act 5 with the chariot race. Ben-Hur versus Masala, both in chariots pulled by four galloping horses. Ben-Hur was J.C. Williamson's most ambitious undertaking. It'd be staged at Her Majesty's Theatre, which was Sydney's finest venue. Built in 1887, it was one of the city's tallest buildings, rising from the corner block of Market and Castle Ray Streets, where Sydney Tower now stands. 
Though initially leased by an actor-producer who staged many productions of Shakespeare, Her Majesty's Theatre had become synonymous with J.C. Williamson. In 1891, he'd brought out Sarah Bernhardt, the world's most famous actress, for a series of productions there. Ten years later, he'd wowed Sydney with Floradora that ran for a staggering 96 performances. And since the turn of the century, J.C. Williamson had been the sole lessee of Her Majesty's Theatre, so his slate filled its seats year-round. Most recently, he'd had a huge success with the Italian Opera Company. When their season wrapped, Ben-Hur was to follow. While J.C. Williamson had negotiated the rights to the show and overseen the hiring of the London troupe, he wasn't actually running the show day-to-day. Direction and practical production fell to Henry Hyam Vincent, then called the stage manager. Mr. Vincent was an English actor who'd first performed in Australia in 1878 and in the early 1880s had become stage manager for JCW. In the past decade, back in England, Mr. Vincent had become a popular character actor, originating supporting roles in Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere's Fan and The Importance of Being Earnest. Now, in early January 1902, as Sydney enjoyed summer and celebrated the first anniversary of Federation, Mr. Vincent took up quarters at Her Majesty's Theatre to prepare Ben-Hur. As you'd expect, there was a lot of excitement. The evening news said that Ben-Hur was, quote, expected to eclipse everything previously seen under the Williamson regime. Truth reckoned, quote, we are promised the greatest stage spectacle ever seen in Australia. To increase interest, JCW printed 50,000 paperback copies of Ben-Hur. This edition, which modestly included his own photo, was cheap at a cover price of ninepence and available at the theatre, railway stands and bookshops. In his role as stage manager, Mr. Vincent had to solve a lot of problems. He and his minions had to find some 100 crew, including a full orchestra. Then there was a large operatic chorus and a troupe of royal ballerinas. Everyone who appeared on stage needed costumes. There were acres and acres of scenic backdrops to paint, showing everything from a rooftop view over Jerusalem to the inside of a Roman slave galley. But the most complicated task was the chariot race. Extensive modifications to the stage were needed to install the electric treadmill mechanism. The motor would also revolve endless loops of scenery at the rate of 2,000 feet a minute. It'd move in the opposite direction to the galloping horses. Adding to that thrilling illusion of movement, smaller endless loop canvases would revolve close to the stage floor, while vegetable dust was blown up from vents around the hooves and wheels. Mr. Vincent and his trainers had to audition 50 horses before they found a dozen able to gallop on the treadmill. Yet there was another animal that was even more difficult to cast. Ben-Hur's book called for a real camel. The dromedary's role was to deliver key characters to stage at dramatic moments. And of course to provide that Middle Eastern flavour. The famous musical score had even in parts been made to replicate the padding hooves of the beast. JCW was reported to be scouring the continent for a camel sufficiently tame to take the stage. A suitable animal actor was eventually found among a herd of 200 out at Burke. JCW bought it and hired an Afghan driver to be its caretaker. This man and the real camel became a regular sight on Sydney's streets as he took it for a walk and to get some fresh air. As Ben-Hur moved towards its opening night on the 8th of February, the bubonic plague made an unwelcome encore. On the 14th of January, a hotel licensee working near Haymarket contracted the plague. 
He was taken to the coast hospital at Little Bay, which was where Dr. Tidswell had decreed patients would now be treated. Five days later, Elizabeth and Ellen Gardner, a mother and daughter living in New South Head Road in Rushcutters Bay slash Paddington, also contracted the disease and were taken to the hospital. Three days after that, Janet and Mary Church, another mother and daughter living next door to the Gardners, were similarly afflicted and removed. There was another case that day also from a cottage a few doors down, a 10-year-old schoolgirl named Ruby Vipond. A quarantine area was declared, bounded by New South Head Road and Glenmore Roads. The enclosed area, Reddy's Hill, was part of Paddington Council and covered some three acres. In the past half century, 150 houses had been built there. As they were inspected and in some cases demolished, city newspaper reporters were on hand to chronicle the filth. Fences were falling down, yards were littered with refuse. Outhouses were jerry-rigged and disgusting. Inside, living areas were barely any better. Walls were splintered, flooring was rotten, and crawl spaces were filled with decades' worth of rubbish. Dead rats were removed, and live rats were caught and destroyed. The evening news said that in a couple of places, the filth just defied description. One building was simply to be burned down. The newspaper celebrating its destruction saying, quote, No fire was ever kindled in a better cause. Looking at these places, the reporter said it was difficult to understand how they hadn't been condemned years ago. The most charitable interpretation to be put on Paddington Council's inaction, the reporter said, was that its members had never ventured into this part of their borough. The evening news continued to say that councils had the power to act on health and on sanitation, and if they encountered opposition or obstacles, they could always appeal to the government rather than just blaming it. The paper reported the Premier was appalled by the descriptions coming from Reddy's Hill because they sounded every bit as bad as the slums of the rocks in 1900. The Premier, John C., was a working-class man who'd made himself rich in the steamship business and was progressive in terms of women's suffrage and industrial relations. He really wanted to do good public works, but he was hamstrung economically by the drought, and, of course, by mayors and aldermen who continually had their hands out. The Premier said the slums, quote, pointed to a sad lack of proper supervision on the part of somebody. But, of course, he also added it was, quote, not a matter in which the government could be held accountable in any way. By the government, he might have meant himself. The man had, after all, been Premier for less than a year. So you can see how he might have objected to being blamed for decades of filth. Paddington's Mayor said the Premier and Dr. Tidswell were unfairly maligning his suburb. For starters, the infected area was on the outskirts of his borough and far closer to the city than to Paddington proper. The Paddington mayor went into full defensive mode. He said his suburb had been free of rats 18 months ago but was now overrun with them. Everyone knew his streets, lanes and buildings were far cleaner than other council areas, not least Sydney itself. So bubonic plague had obviously come from other parts of the city. Either Dr. Tidswell was misrepresenting the facts to the Premier, or the Premier was misinterpreting them to the public. The Mayor said the Premier bore responsibility because his government hadn't recently passed the Amended Health Act. This legislation, which had been supported by the eminent Dr. Armstrong, who was medical officer to the combined municipalities, would have given councils more power to act to remove such sanitation dangers. As it stood, the law hobbled them. Their powers to compel cleanups and demolitions were limited. And what they could do, they were supposed to do with less. 
councils had been denied extra funding required to employ men to carry out essential work, and they'd also been refused reimbursement for money already spent. Randwick Council was making similar complaints about lack of funds and support. They'd applied to the government for a rat catcher, but had been refused, told it wasn't the government's job to help councils carry out the provisions of the Public Health Act. The Premier didn't exactly deny this. The Daily Telegraph paraphrased him thus, It is, he thinks, as much an alderman's or a citizen's duty to try to stamp out plague as it is the duty of the health authorities. Yet all of this made it seem like appalling conditions were something only found in the suburbs. A reporter for the Evening News pointed out that if the Premier or Dr Tidswell should pop into a row of buildings on Hunter Street, just two blocks from State Parliament, they'd see conditions there that were every bit as bad as Reddy's Hill. For many decades, a terrace of sad-looking, dirt-encrusted and apparently empty two-storey houses had been a blight on this part of the city. The paper said if anyone lived in them, you might imagine they were criminals of the worst type, men born and bred in squalid surroundings. But you'd be wrong about that. These buildings were indeed inhabited, not by thieves, but by men who were supposed to catch thieves. These were police department buildings, owned and controlled by the state government, and clerks who worked inside them divided their time between fending off pests and attending to criminal records. Out the back of these terraces were latrines whose odour, the evening news said, was what you'd expect in somewhere like Salon. Strong, healthy policemen often complained of feeling sick. The sewer pipes on these premises were broken and had been leaking into an old well and under adjacent buildings for years but the state government was simply trying to effect repairs rather than demolishing these hazardous eyesores that had been right under their noses for decades. The new plague outbreak did spur Dr Tidswell to announce the reopening of rat depots on council premises at Wallara, Point Piper, Paddington and Ashfield. But even when they were offered this support, councils would then be slow to get drums filled with disinfectant and get their fires burning. Citizens weren't off the hook either. Rat poisons, disinfectants and traps had been available free these past three months. Few had cared. Now there was a rush. All of this came too late for 72-year-old Janet Church, who died on the 25th of January at the Coast Hospital, Sydney's first plague victim of 1902. Back then, newspapers most often provided only basic information about such unfortunate folk. So it wasn't like Janet Church's photo was in the papers or comments from her grieving friends and family could be found in articles. There were few cues to empathy, less reason perhaps to see this as a problem that might affect you and yours. A new area of concern was identified when Alexandria Council's newly appointed sanitary inspector actually did the job he'd been appointed to. This man was appalled that so many parts of his bailiwick were dumping grounds for filth. He began house-to-house inspections and said these should have been done years ago. This inspector was to report, quote, The houses are in the most disgraceful conditions, both as regards repairs and cleanliness. The interiors are filthy, fences broken down, and the conditions of the closets is the worst I have seen for a long time. Doors and floors are wanting, and there is dirt and dilapidation beyond description. The tenant said there was no regular service of night carts and that for the most part they buried their night soil on vacant land at the rear. It needs to be remembered that many or even most of these people were renting these properties from slum landlords who were resistant to spending a single penny on any sort of maintenance. 
What was obvious to anyone in Sydney with eyes and a nose was that these problems existed everywhere and had done for decades. Muck and literal crap is pretty hard to ignore, but people did, collectively, for a very long time. It was only when plague really reared its ratty head again that the scales fell from everyone's eyes at once. They could all see now, and what they could see was that it wasn't their fault. Plague came from foreign ports. Rats were the problem of the state government, or the Harbour Trust, or the Board of Health, or the Water Board, or the Works Board, or this, or that, or the other council. As for the garbage that the rats fed on and bred in, cleaning it up was the problem of, well, you get the picture. The Daily Telegraph was right on the money when it said of the recent revelations of filthy conditions across the city, quote, These are instructive, recently accruing examples of the callousness in which the first duty of the representatives of the community, taking precautions against disease, is being ignored. As for Johnston's Bay and the other bloody waterways, which the government claimed it was now about to act on, the paper quite reasonably offered this, quote, The wonder is, however, that such a colossally offensive business should have gone on so long without being noticed and stopped. The Daily Telegraph had the knives out for the state government, but it wasn't giving the councils a free pass. Quote, Equally serious is the indifference of the municipal bodies, which only learn of such evils as those of Alexandria when they are old established and allow a virtually unchecked increase of rats, though they have been warned over and over again that these are unquestionably the spreading agents of the plague. While such neglect as this prevails among those whose special business it is to see that sanitary precautions are vigilantly taken, the city and suburbs will always be liable to epidemic disease. It seemed that almost everything Sydney had achieved in 1900 had now been squandered. And it was useless blaming foreign infection. The Daily Telegraph said, quote, Sydney was cleaned up in a partial fashion. It is now obvious that enough of the vermin survived all the efforts towards their complete extermination to repopulate the metropolitan area. Rat breeding grounds, be they houses, businesses, market gardens, municipal tips or bloody bays, had allowed rats to return in what the Daily Telegraph called swarms, which make it necessary to enter upon the work again at a cost of many more human lives as the price of the former lack of thoroughness. The paper went on. The same lack now exists. There is division of authority, and in the confusion and incertitude resulting from it, the most urgently necessary public service that the time calls for is being inefficiently rendered. It is essential to public safety that better measures should be adopted at once to purify the city of the chief cause of danger menacing it. By now, Sydney had a new mayor, Sir Thomas Hughes. He had also acquitted himself well as part of the Vigilance Committee against the plague in 1900. But this was another change in leadership in an already fractious system. I get the feeling that if J.C. Williamson's Ben-Hur manager, Henry Hyam Vincent, had been in charge, he might have gotten the job done far more efficiently. While Sydney's officialdom was scrambling to react effectively, Mr. Vincent ruled over his production like a benevolent dictator. He was across every performance, every technical detail, and every department, from costumes and scenery to the orchestra and choir. But were he and cast and crew members occasionally coming across dead or dying rats in the cavernous spaces of Her Majesty's Theatre? We don't know. He, like a lot of other people in charge of businesses, might have just turned a blind eye. 
This was one of the problems the Board of Health repeatedly stated, that people wouldn't come forward about rat infestation. Yet, as we'll see, when they did, they were often ignored. On the 1st of February, with the Italian opera's season finished, Ben-Hur began nightly full-dress rehearsals. While the show-stopping scenes were kept from the press, a reporter for the Australian Star got to see Mr Vincent, the quote, busiest man in the city, in action as he supervised a street scene on stage, while also keeping an eye on the chorus in the wings as they went over a hymn again and again. In the 24 hours leading up to the opening night, Saturday 8th of February, Sydney had four more cases of bubonic plague. Arthur Huxley, 30, had a produce store at Alexandria. He was whisked off to the coast hospital. The sanitary inspector examined his business and found he was a rag picker who'd stored piles and piles of rancid cloth that he'd scavenged from tips and these had become a breeding ground for rats. So, another mark against the mandarins of Alexandria Council. Yet the other three cases? They were all in the city. In the realm of the Premier and the Mayor, the Chief of the Board of Health and Sydney's Chief Medical Officer. The victims were Thomas Cuddy, a 42-year-old hotel worker from George Street. George Wachina, a 34-year-old fish shop worker from a few doors down. James Foy, a 15-year-old newsboy from Cumberland Street whose occupation saw him roam all over town. Dr. Tidswell at this point said that 8,000 more rats had been destroyed in the past month. That was 300 per day. Of these, only a few were infected. Dr. Tidswell pointed out to the Sydney Morning Herald that, quote, The plague now existed practically all over the world. It was to be found in China, India, the Mauritius, at the Cape Colony, Honolulu, Brisbane and other places, all of which were in direct communication with Australia. We were therefore necessarily exposed to infection. That was very likely true, but it also didn't excuse creating conditions that allowed bubonic plague to take hold and to spread. What seemed extraordinary was that, more than a month after the newspapers had been filled with stories about the bloody bays of Sydney and the mass fish kill had been reported, there was still debate as to whether there was actually any sort of problem. The Australian Star reported, quote, There is some disagreement as to whether Johnston's Bay is much polluted or not. The Board of Health submits that it is doing its best, and has been doing so for some time past, but believes that things in this regard are not as bad as they are painted. Trying to get to the bottom of things, Sydney's Mayor made his own inquiries with the Board of Health. He was told that Johnston's Bay was not tainted with sewage or blood or offal, simply harmless enough water that had been used to wash down the abattoirs. This, of course, was news to 50,000 people who were breathing in the stench day in, day out. If there was a campaign to kill rats around the bloody bays, it certainly wasn't reported. This latest denial of any problem came on Saturday the 8th of February. That night, the curtain rose on Ben-Hur before a full house at Her Majesty's Theatre. The show was a triumph. From the first moment, with the three wise men following the star, the audience was enthralled by the scenery, by the costuming, by the music, by everything. The referee newspaper said Mr. Vincent was likely the finest director in the world. Ben-Hur's audience thrilled to the pirate galley scene that was so realistic it was like the boat wasn't on the stage at all, but instead was out through the heads being tossed around on the seas. And the chariot race? No one had ever seen anything like it. The Sydney Morning Herald described the audience being, quote, thrown into a frenzy of enthusiasm and delight by the novel realism of the horses galloping. 
there was a standing ovation at the end of that act. J.C. Williamson, Mr. Vincent and their American mechanic and horse trainer took to the stage and they then took several more curtain calls. The Sydney Mail said Ben-Hur was, quote, a riot of scenic magnificence, a revel of superb mounting and dressing and a triumph of mechanism. Truth went with, a splendid spectacular splash. We have never seen a better built-up or more striking stage picture in Australia. Any criticism was of the sort familiar to blockbuster films today. There wasn't a plot so much as a series of spectacles, and these were so big, the characters became a little lost. Truth said of the actors, quote, There is little room for individual criticism, complimentary or otherwise. But it did praise several performers, including Conway Turler's Ben-Hur and Australia's very own Mabel Lane as his mum. Special kudos, the paper said, should also be given to the real camel. However, referee newspaper said that this headstrong dromedary had provided an inadvertent moment of amusement. One celebratory scene was apparently not to the liking of the, quote, high-minded camel who showed his disfavour by promptly walking offstage against the wishes of his attendants. In reality, the camel was a she. That aside, the papers agreed on one thing about the show. As referee newspaper put it, one feels pretty safe in predicting for it a record run. Ben-Hur had conquered Sydney, and he was here to stay. The next day, Sunday the 9th of February, that newsboy, James Foy, died of the plague at the Coast Hospital. With the disease now in the city proper, the Board of Health took over the surveillance of contacts, the inspection and disinfection of buildings, and the killing of rats. On the 12th of February, the Sydney Morning Herald was pleased with how authorities were now reacting. Quote, without panic in any quarter or suggestions of wild and extravagant cleansing operations. The paper said it was up to all citizens to lend their support to the extermination of the rats. The Daily Telegraph was, typically, far more critical of officialdom across the board. North Sydney Council, it said, was case in point. It had just had the gall to declare itself clean when, in reality, this thickly populated burrow had streets piled with garbage and backyards and vacant land that were used as dumping grounds for household waste. There were faulty sewer connections, filthy lanes, cow yard sandwiched between buildings and nightmen who carted night soil through the streets. In short, North Sydney offered all the same rat feeding and breeding grounds to be found all across the city and suburbs. The Daily Telegraph said, quote, It is this spirit of self-satisfied inefficiency as much as the other of positive indifference or ignorance that will be blamable if the plague tightens its present ominous hold. Dr Tidswell's Board of Health Labs were analysing rats and they weren't finding much plague at all. But where it was being found, it was being found in multiple locations across the city. So the only course was to continue the general destruction of rats. The Board of Health advised householders to lay poisons liberally. This was, of course, shifting the responsibility for plague containment from the state government and municipal councils to the citizens. In case anyone was in doubt, Dr Tidswell said, quote, The matter is essentially one for private individuals rather than for the authorities. Poisons were freely available. So were disinfectants and deodorants that would make life unpleasant for rats and also mask the smell of their dead bodies in walls and floors. Householders, the board said, needed to secure food and get rid of accumulations of rubbish. All of this was eminently sensible. 
but the authorities also weren't helping by persisting with a system of rubbish collection that saw people putting their garbage into open boxes on the streets. All of these were only collected weekly, and they became rat restaurants. A Sydney City alderman urged the employment of 12 rat catchers. He said, quote, There must be a crusade against rats if the city is to be free from disease. It was exactly what the former mayor had said three months ago, yet there still hadn't been a concerted and sustained attack on the rodents. Remarkably, at this time, Dr Armstrong, Sydney's medical officer, said he wanted to go to a medical congress in Hobart. So did Dr Mayla Kendall, medical officer of the Water and Sewerage Board. The Sydney Council was greatly taken aback that these two essential men should think it prudent to abandon the city for weeks at this time. Sanity prevailed and permission was refused. By now the Paddington quarantine area had been lifted and gangs of workers were busy disinfecting and demolishing at Alexandria and at various city locations. When their day was over, these men hopped on trams, wearing the clothes they'd been in doing this dirty work. A Daily Telegraph letter writer said surely it made sense for authorities to lodge these men together to save them using public transport, or at the very least to give them a change of clothes before they travelled. You'd be forgiven for wondering where vaccination fit into all of this. At the start of the 1900 plague, Sydney had a small supply of Hafkeen's prophylactic. Inoculations with this serum offered some measure of protection against the plague. But the general public wasn't interested at first. Then, in March, there was a full-on riot as people clamoured for the jab from a newly arrived supply. Two months later, when the serum was more freely available, few people turned up to get vaccinated. In 1902, Hafkeen's serum would barely figure. There was no rollout, not even a stroll out, though the city did have a supply. Dr Tidswell said this reflected public demand. The Daily Telegraph would report, quote, The question of inoculation by Hafkeen's prophylactic is agitating the minds of a good many of the public. A representative of this paper spoke to Dr Tidswell concerning the matter yesterday. The acting chief medical advisor says inoculation by this prophylactic tends to an extent to render a person immune from attack and, if he is attacked by the plague, it has the effect of considerably moderating the violence of the disease. There is a supply of prophylactic at the health office and Dr Tidswell states that any medical man making a request will be supplied with it. Also, if there is a sufficiently strong public demand, an inoculator will be appointed but no inoculations will be made at the Office of the Health Department as was done last year. It is a somewhat interesting circumstance that out of the gangs employed by the City Council in cleansing, only two men accepted the opportunity of being inoculated. On the 13th of February, the evening news ran a headline that simply said, The Plague. Since November it said, quote, Sydney has, as it were, held its breath, praying silently and fervently that each fresh development might be the final stage. Even though the first horror of the visitation, when it was new in our midst two years ago, has abated, there is still in the public mind that vague dread of an unfamiliar pestilence which makes the disease ten times more terrible than others more dangerous but more common. And with the last few days, a steady increase in the number of cases, recognised as being unequivocally bubonic, has left little ground for hoping that Sydney is going to escape this year as it did last. It is to be recognised unmistakably that the plague is in our midst.
and the citizens may not shut their eyes to its existence. This included the city council, which urgently had to deal with the rubbish problem on the streets. The evening news also called on citizens to act. Quote, there is plague and it must be fought. If householders do their duty and assist the authorities in every possible way, there is, we believe, no cause to fear a very sweeping visitation. People simply had to lay rat poison everywhere. And they had to keep their chins up. Quote, Bubonic plague is not a cheerful thing, but it may be best met cheerfully. On the afternoon of Saturday the 15th of February, another huge crowd enjoyed the matinee performance of Ben-Hur before spilling out into the late summer Sydney streets. As they went home on trams and ferries, a new tide of theatre-goers swept into the city for that night's show. But when they got to Her Majesty's Theatre, they found the brilliant lights were off and the big iron gates of the portals were locked and guarded by police. Painted boards informed that the theatre, through unavoidable circumstances, was closed. That night's performance of Ben-Hur would not go on. Tickets would be good for other performances, or refunds would be issued. So, why couldn't the show go on? Rumours swept the annoyed crowd. Had the gas gone bung and left the theatre in darkness? One wag suggested that the horses had gone on strike. And along these lines, someone else reckoned the real camel had kicked the bucket. But the answer was all around these Sydney-siders and tourists from out of town. Invisible to the naked eye, it was inside rats, swarming in city cellars and ceilings, walls and floors, warehouses and wharves, sewers and foreshores, and likely along the causeway at bloody Johnston's Bay. Invisible to the naked eye, it was now also inside a poor boy who'd been working at Her Majesty's Theatre in the past week. Invisible to the naked eye, Yersinia pestis, the bubonic plague bacterium, measures about one twenty-five thousandth of an inch. Yet, on the 15th of February, 1902 in Sydney, it was far bigger than Ben-Hur. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Parts 2 and 3 of The Plague Returns will be on release very soon. This episode was made with the use of digitised newspapers found at the National Library of Australia's Marvellous Trove database, and with reference to the original New South Wales Medical Register of Plague Cases. Further personal information about victims was found in records at ancestry.com.au. If you'd like to support Forgotten Australia for as little as $3 a month, you'll be helping me research, write and produce these episodes. And as a thank you, you'll get early access to episodes, ad-free, a show shout-out, bonus shows, and other goodies. For more information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. A big thank you to recent supporters, John Marshall and Ewan McConchie. Cheers, champs. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.